0: For us as marketers, what that means is that all the messages we are putting out, our audience is meeting them with doubt by default. We have to acknowledge that reality. All of the the recent studies on this back it up that folks just don't believe what we say.
1: I'm Salisa Steele.
2: I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Trust is fundamental in marketing. Without trustworthy marketing, products and services, no matter how excellent, will languish because today, by default, audiences doubt what marketers say. What this means is learning businesses need to do the work to collect and use evidence to back up their marketing claims. In this episode, number 388, Jeff talks with Melanie Diesel about exactly how to do that. Melanie is a former journalist who spent the last decade helping individuals, teams, and organizations unlock their creative potential and organize their creative effort, with a big focus on trust. Melanie is the co-founder of the Creator Kitchen Mastermind for Creatives and the author of both The Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas, and Prove It, Exactly How Modern Marketers Earn Trust. Drawing on an elegant and simplifying framework from her book, Prove It, Melanie and Jeff discuss five types of claims businesses often make, claims about convenience, comparability, commitment, connection, and competence, and three types of evidence that can back up those claims, corroboration, demonstration, and education. Their conversation is both thought-provoking and highly practical. If you're looking to make sure your learners see you as a trustworthy source of content, and you should be looking to do that, then this episode is for you. Jeff and Melanie spoke in November, 2023.
2: Can you say a bit more about that um, background as a journalist? Because I think that's so important to the work you do and, and really stands you out.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I studied to be a journalist. I always thought I would end up in a newsroom and timing wise. I studied when we weren't going to digital newsrooms, we were going to the analog style, right? I thought I would work in a print newspaper and that's what we were doing. So I studied investigative reporting and arts and cultural criticism and a lot of the things that have sort of gone by the wayside as things have transitioned more digitally. So there wasn't necessarily a home for me in the more modern newsrooms. And that's when I realized that a lot of the skills and things that I had learned as a journalist, Just, you know, being able to find stories, being able to interview folks who may not want to be interviewed and kind of pull out their expertise as broader context, the ability to take feedback from lots of different stakeholders on a deadline. You know, a lot of those skills were really as useful in a marketing context or a sales context as they were in journalism. So really thought this is an opportunity for me to share what I know in a way that's going to help other folks in industry, hopefully be able to, to tell better stories and create a deeper connection with their audience.
2: Well, I think it's almost certainly going to come out in this conversation, how that background and those skills have served you well. And you speak frequently, you write, obviously, we'll talk about particularly one of your books, I think, in our conversation. I know you're also doing this initiative. I don't know how you characterize a project initiative company, the, the creator kitchen. Can you say a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so the Creator Kitchen is a a mastermind group for folks who consider themselves to be creators. And so we've got about 55 members, but that varies from filmmakers to podcasters to authors. We've got all kinds of different creative folks. And really, it's a a partnership between myself and Jay Akunzo, another great speaker, author, uh, prolific podcaster. And the two of us had been chatting about how there's so much advice today about how to to 10x your business and make 10 times more content. And we wanted a space where we could take a step back and really focus on the quality and the craft and and honing those skills. Uh, Because at the end of the day, if your message isn't powerful, if it isn't resonating, then having 10 times more of it's not going to help you much. So we kind of have assembled this crew of Amazing creators from all different walks of life, and we're really just focused on increasing all of the the sort of core functional skills of being a great communicator and an effective storyteller. Uh, and it's been a whole lot of fun to get to work with these folks and, and see the growth alongside. It's just as much fun for us as facilitators as it is for the the members to watch that growth happen in real time.
2: Well, I think those kinds of groups can be so powerful. In fact, we do something similar ourselves with a uh, part of our audience. And certainly there is so much content out there that anything that's going to help to raise the quality of that content and really make it much more meaningful to to people is, well, very much appreciated these days. And I know you've put a lot of thinking into how you do that effectively. And so let's dig into some of your thinking around this. And I, I wanna first reference your most recent book, Prove It, Exactly How Modern Marketers Earn Trust. And in that, you make the point that trust is just fundamental in marketing and sales. For the sake of our listeners, could you explain what trust is in in the context you're talking about? And I'll ask you to do that first, and then maybe make the case in brief for why organizations need to focus on building trust.
0: Yeah, so the two sort of why and what it is I feel are really intertwined. What we know from looking at data is that historically our audience would trust the things we say as marketers. They just believed it. They thought we were giving them face value, you know, with few rare exceptions. They thought if we're saying these things, surely someone somewhere is regulating it and it must be true. And in this day and age, in this digital first day and age, the age of fake news and AI and deep fakes and all these other things, the audience no longer has that liberty to be able to believe the things they see or to take them at face value. So for us as marketers, what that means is that all the messages we are putting out, our audience is meeting them with doubt by default. We have to acknowledge that reality. All of the the recent studies on this back it up that folks just don't believe what we say. Now, that could be depressing. We could get upset by this, but it's also an incredible opportunity to realize that If we are willing to acknowledge that fact and to build that reality into the work that we're doing, we can then create more trustworthy content. We can bring in outside sources. We can sort of peel back the curtain and show folks what's happening so they can see it with their own eyes. It really gives us an opportunity to make it so that they don't have to decide to trust us. They can see the truth for themselves and they don't have to rely on our word as the sole source of information about our our brand, our products, our services, our courses, any of these opportunities that we're putting forth, if we acknowledge that they're going to meet it with doubt before anything else, we take that as, as an opportunity for us to really go out of our way to provide backup for all the things we're saying so that hopefully we can build that trusting relationship with them.
2: You know, and it's it's really serendipitous because we're in the midst of some work where just this week we got some survey responses back for one of the organizations we're working with that showed that the the people who are attending their events and their education do not actually view them as an unbiased source like that's one of the things they rated the lowest in yeah. which really kind of knocked their socks off that that's the way but but the fact is even if everything that they're saying is is truthful and valid and they're doing their job people bring a lot of baggage to their oh, yeah. purchase decisions these days don't they
0: Absolutely. Yeah. They're not only bringing their own personal experiences and and more so than in the past, they're also bringing their values and the things that they care about in the world in terms of causes and things like that. But yeah, they they also have a whole bunch of past experience of getting ripped off of having bought a course and it wasn't what they thought it would be or ordering a product and it came and it was a cheap knockoff imitation. They have these experiences now that make them even less likely to trust us through no fault of our own sometimes. Like you said, we may be fine, upstanding citizens. We may be providing awesome products, delivering on every promise, but you know, it's that whole, if one of the M&Ms is poison, you're a lot more careful reaching into the bowl. And that's kind of the view that a lot of customers take where we may not be the bad guy in terms of not delivering on our promises, but there's always a chance and they don't know who's who until we take the opportunity to show them the truth.
1: At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you are looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagorascom slash Services.
2: In the process of marketing and promoting themselves, companies, organizations are, are always making claims uh, about themselves. And you, you categorize those claims, which I think is, is very useful as a way to sort of think about things and then be able to do something about them. And I, those categories are convenience, comparability, commitment, connection, and competence. Could you give a little explanation of each of those and what kinds of claims are generally entailed in those?
0: For sure. Yeah. So these buckets, I don't claim that they represent every possible claim type that a business can make. But what we looked at, my co-author and I on the book is as part of that research, we looked at tons and tons of business copy and sales assets and those By far, those five categories where most of the claims we saw could be categorized. So it kind of is a useful thought exercise when you're looking for your own claims, but also identifying them in the wild, so to speak. Convenience is one of the biggest ones. And and we see that anytime a business or a, a campaign is making a claim about something being easy, being accessible, being cheap, being quick, being simple. There's lots of synonyms sort of out there, but where we're really arguing that this product is going to in some way make your life easier, cheaper, simpler, more streamlined, you know, it's giving that promise of like, this is going to be an easy experience to work with us. We tend to see this a lot with regards to shipping times. So, you know, anywhere you're seeing overnight shipping or free shipping or same day delivery, those kinds of things are are often a convenience promise. We see it a lot with return policies, right, that we're willing to, you know, you have a 30 day money back guarantee. So there's very little risk, those kinds of things. But really convenience, if you have an element of your messaging where you're focused on telling folks it's going to be easy to work with you, that's probably a convenience claim that you're seeing there. So let's see what next up we have comparability. Comparability. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really where your claim is based on a comparison point to something else. And so you may be saying we're the strongest of all the options. We are the most experienced. We are, we've been around longer than anyone else. We have you know, worked with more companies. We have more partners, more awards, whatever it is, it's a comparison point against something else. Now, in most cases, we are comparing to a competitor of some kind, right? So we are the only accredited one. You know, you're sort of saying that the others may not be, but it can also be in comparison to doing nothing. That's also a valid comparison, right? That in working with us, you'll achieve five times greater results than if you didn't work with a partner on this. So anytime that your business claim about yourself really relies on some other comparison point, whether that's a competitor, a different type of solution, or just inaction, that's a a comparability claim. And you're going to have to prove that comparison is valid
2: right and then commitment
0: commitment yeah so this is the the values point we were talking about earlier is that increasingly and especially with younger audiences so like Gen Z and millennial in particular they're very inclined to make purchases based on alignments with their own values. So that would be a commitment to sustainability, for example, to equal pay, to supporting a particular social or political cause, for example. It could also be things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's lots of different values that fall into this category that they may want to support only companies that offer their employees a fair wage, right? So anywhere where you're And as an entity, your business having a commitment to a particular value or cause is part of what's driving that desire to work with you or part of what's making it more likely that they will return and and provide loyalty to you as a business. And this is one of the categories where not providing proof is one of the most damning, honestly. Because in many cases, when we're making a values-based purchase, it has to do with our identity, right? I consider myself to be sustainable and eco-conscious. Therefore, I'm making this purchase because you are also sustainable and eco-conscious. If I find out that's not the case, that I, as someone who's sustainable and eco-conscious, have made this very wasteful purchase because you are not telling the truth, that's not just a disappointing purchase. That's like an insult to identity, right? It feels like a betrayal. You've made me do something that I don't agree with. So that is where we Often see the most backlash uh, if you can't actually back up the claims that you are sustainable, committed to diversity, that you offer a fair wage, and all these other cause-based
2: claims that businesses are often making. And then connection and competence.
0: Connection and competence, yeah. So these two, oftentimes I think there's like a little bit of confusion between commitment and connection because they can feel the same. You could be very committed to your employees, for example, or committed to your customers. But when we talk about connection, that's really a two-way relationship. So when we say connected to our customers, that's that I know your name, I know your birth date, right? You're not just a number. it's Olive Garden, when you're here, your family, right? It's a different standard. It's not just about customer trans. It's not transactional. It's truly relational. And so we see this a lot with service-based businesses where you have your dedicated point of contact, who knows you, who you can call anytime. It's really about that relationship that they're going to be there for you. This is also especially true with Uh, services and and businesses that are sort of of an ongoing nature. So if it's supportive in nature, maybe it's therapy or it's a coach, it's fitness or health support, these kinds of things where that ongoing relationship is really important. We tend to see more of those connection claims too. You'll have your dedicated, committed, connected advisor or coach or point of contact that's going to work with you. So that's very important, too. It's it's often one of the reasons people will make a purchase one way or the other is based on where they feel they're going to have the deepest connection with the person they'll be working with. And competence we put last uh, in the list, not because it's least important, but because I think it's kind of table stakes. You know, I joke at the beginning of the book that uh, if your claims aren't true, this book will not help you at all. I I cannot help you trick people. Uh, That's really not what we're talking about here. The baseline understanding is that Hopefully, all of us are good at our jobs. We're delivering a quality service, a quality product. And what we're hoping to do is prove that to the audience. Now, we still have to back up that claim. You know, you still have to prove that you know what you're doing and you get good results. And you have, in fact, worked with XYZ partners that you said you've worked with, things like that. But it is sort of table stakes. And I think... People will often make their own judgments on competence based on the evidence they see. So it's some of the others where we have the most control to make the biggest difference on, you know, if we're creating good products, that stuff often speaks for itself. But we do need to be able to prove a lot of those other ones much more strongly.
2: Right. Right. Thanks for taking the time to to walk through those, because I think it's just helpful to be able to categorize things in that way. I'm wondering... And the the answer may just be it depends, and that's certainly fair if it is, but you know, from the standpoint of an organization whose product is knowledge, education, learning, like that's what they're selling, that's what they have to convince people on i'm I'm wondering if any of those are more valuable than others. And part of what's in my mind is certainly the competence box. You, have, you definitely have to check that if you're actually trying to convince people you know what you're talking about. So I'm thinking particularly out of the others, maybe some of these learning businesses need to be focusing on one or more of those others more than they are right now.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on. As as is often the the case in marketing, the answer is it depends. But I can steer you close to one or the other depending on your particular uh, challenge or your particular focus right now as an organization. So if you are worried about market share, if you are trying to take business from another entity or you have like really stiff competition, then I would focus on comparability. That's a place where you're gonna be able to say that our course or our offering is, again, the only accredited one or it's faster to complete. You're, you're really anchoring your offering in comparison to what you know to be another choice that you may lose out to on occasion. So comparability will be big if you are focused on market share or worried about a particular competitor, especially if they're a new competitor, right? That's really splashy and it's got a bunch of ads out there. That's a place where you may want to focus on comparability and particularly for adult learning. I think if you're focused on adult learning, convenience is more important than ever. If that is a selling point for you, for the the offering that you have, really lean into that. Talk about how flexible the hours are. Talk about what's available online or replay. Talk about the timing and pacing of the learning. Talk about the different ways it can be accessed, right? Can I watch this on my phone, for example, versus having to be at my desk? I think if convenience is one of the selling points, if that's something that's important for you, then I would really be focusing on proving that out with as many backup examples as you can to help make the case that this really is something they could fit in their lives. It really is something they have time to do.
2: an important follow on to these categories of claims that you set up is that you offer three ways to actually use evidence to back up the claims which is really important so you talk about corroboration, demonstration, education and then in each of those three ways you've got you're very systematic i have to say it's, like, it's really nice so in each of those three ways you have two methods or approaches so for example under corroboration you have experts and and witnesses under demonstration. You have stories and documentation, and then under education, information, and coaching. This is all coming out of your your, your book that I'm referencing on Prove It. I I really like the uh, approach. Very clear, elegant, uh, simplifies what really could be a, a messy process. I'm wondering... Is that your journalistic background coming out or how did you arrive at, <laughs> at that at that approach?
0: So it's funny. I think it's a combination of two things. One, it is definitely the journalistic background, right? Like I said, the, the process of writing this book involved a lot of analysis and not in probably a rigorous academic sense. I didn't conduct a, you know, a statistically significant study. It was more me looking at a lot of the things that I know have been successful with Brands I've worked with, and, and out in the marketplace, and seeing what those trends are, and seeing what's been working well, and identifying that these are some common categories. But I also happen to be autistic, and so systematic thinking is is very sort of core to me. I can't help but think in this way, in this like organized, structured way. So my first book is actually a matrix in its organization as well. It's a ten by ten matrix. So it's just the way my mind works, which is really valuable, hopefully, for creating clear systems. But um, where a lot of the organization and the naming for these types of content came from this type of evidence that you can use comes from the the world of law. I mean, you, you mentioned corroboration with experts and witnesses. I felt like that was a really familiar framework. Most of us have either had some experience in a courtroom or have seen a courtroom drama, right? There's plenty of them out there. And so we're familiar with this idea that, okay, our defendant, which is us as the brand, right, as a marketer has said something, and we need to back it up with experts, somebody from outside of our organization who can lend some credibility, and then witnesses, people who have experienced it themselves, our past students, our faculty, whoever it is, that has seen this stuff in action and can say, they're not just saying that I was there, I learned, I grew, I achieved these results myself. So I tried to to combine the simple format, but also like a familiar analogy that I thought people might be able to have like a reference point for.
2: Fantastic. And I mean, it really does work. It does help to as you systematize it, bring it together in a way that you can really make it useful. Now, so much of what you talk about applies to to brands. You know, we're all familiar with big brands out there and, and certainly they make plenty of claims that they have to back up. One of the interesting things about our audience is oftentimes they're operating under the umbrella of a bigger brand. So they might be within a trade or professional association, or they might be within a university. And you know, those institutions, those organizations have their brand out in the marketplace for the larger audience they're serving. But then within that, there's this learning business that's you know offering the continuing education, professional development, that often doesn't necessarily have a brand of its own. Does what you're saying uh, about sort of the overall brand, can you take that down to like a business line or the specific products that business line is offering? And- yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I use brand just because I think for most marketers, that's like the common language. But absolutely, it's whatever you're offering. It works if you have a service based business It works if you're a small business. If you have different products that do different things, you may rely on different types of evidence. I think the the advantage that many of your listeners will have is that they do often have a big brand that kind of gives them that competence proof just by being there. If you get to come in and say you're associated with this university, this association, this well-known organization, that's kind of a stamp of competence and approval that comes with that, right? It's wonderful to have that. And I think, even operating within that, if you don't, you don't have to feel like you are building that credibility for your sub brand, but really for the product or course or program that you're selling at that particular time. So, thinking of As an example, if your larger organization is sending out an email about a particular program or course or offering that you have thinking, how can we in this piece of communication make sure that we are emphasizing and providing backup for how convenient this is. We know the audience is busy and they might think they can't fit this in. How do we provide evidence for that? What experts could we call in or witnesses could we have to back up the fact that this is doable within their current schedule, their current lifestyle? So looking at every sort of communication opportunity As a chance to sprinkle some evidence in there, and I I like to think of the evidence as seasoning. Like you can sprinkle it over whatever you're doing. You probably won't be using, you know, all six types of evidence in a single Facebook post or something like that. But it's a seasoning you can add where it makes sense and where it would sort of enrich the value of that communication.
2: That's true. You probably don't want to overdo it, or let's get a (laughs) uh, pick pick your battles basically. Yeah, we've touched on this a a little bit already, but I think it's worth spending a little more time on, just given the nature of our audience that. In a lot of cases, for a brand, when you're building trust, it might be a it might be a consumer product, it might be a car, uh, might be something physical that's being sold in a retail type situation. But when you're talking about information, you're talking about courses, coaching, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, anything different about building trust in, in that environment?
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting about this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my instinct says that. Most people are not engaging with info products for the product itself. It's for the results that those products will create for them. And that's surely that's true of other things, health and fitness. They want to lose weight, whatever. Um, But I think particularly in for adult learners, especially they're hoping to be qualified for a promotion. They're hoping to go into a new area of business, a new industry. They're hoping to advance their career or make themselves better positioned to be hired for a job. There's some sort of broader goal there that it's not just it's not really about, I must take a, my goal is not to take a course, right? That's not the goal. My goal is not to get the certificate, right? It's what that, that's a means to an end. And so I think particularly focusing on the results that you're creating, you know, I, I work with a lot of universities in terms of messaging and we often focus on graduation rates or how many are hired within a certain period of time after graduation, those kind of results, right? Is that the degree, the certificate, the completion of the program is a means to an end. So let's make sure we talk about that end so folks understand that this is the correct means to that end.
2: I think that is so important because I think many of the organizations that we work with are much better positioned to deliver that desired result than some of their competition is because the competition is really about how can we put it out there cheap and easy for people to go through and check the box, which is fine. You got to do that, but it doesn't necessarily achieve a bigger result. A lot is changing out there Mm -hmm. right now and impacting the world of marketing. What are some emerging trends in marketing that, that you think have the potential to impact how organizations go about building trust with their audiences?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple things that I I'm keeping an eye on and I know consumers are too I think in marketing we're we're a little bit navel gazing we tend to worry about things that are sort of insular and I think AI is one of those things. I think the average consumer is probably not thinking about AI and the impacts of you know, generating text out of nowhere, impact on their daily life. It's something we think about as marketers because we are generative in nature. So it feels competitive. Right. But I do think that that is going to create a lot more content out there. And that will just by nature of sheer competition mean that we have to create better content, more trustworthy content, more accurate content in order to compete. So I think that's a reality we're up against. And I do think that especially with, you know, recent news in the last few months, the profile of things like deep fakes or, you know, AI altered images, it it becomes less clear what is real and what is not. Right. And for the average consumer that can really only have the effect of increasing doubt even further and therefore has the effect of increasing the importance of evidence and multiple types of evidence right because a single image alone may no longer be enough to convince someone they're not sure if that's real but if we can come in with an expert testimonial a quote from one of our students the image showing this you know we can kind of bring in multiple forms of evidence and hopefully you know build a case to successfully defend that we're someone worthy of their their time their money and their attention
2: yeah. It seems like if you're combining good evidence with good relationships, you're you're going to be fine, but that's hard work to do both of those things. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suspect that, you know, any learning business professional leader who's listening to this is going to say, yeah, great. I get it. We need to build trust. So let's get to it. What's the first step? What do organizations need to do to go from what to, I guess probably to assess where they are right now and then start moving forward.
0: So there's lots of ways that you can get very technical about this. You know, there are agencies you can hire who will do, you know, brand perception studies and all of these kinds of things. If that's how you operate, if you have the budget and the time, by all means, go for it. But for a lot of us who are working with leaner resources, that's not really within reach. And so we have to take a little bit more of a scrappy approach. And what I would say is your first step is probably to take a look at what you would consider to be your major assets and your major messaging. So if you have a website where you do most of your sales, for example or if you you know most of your leads come from social media look for that the most impactful place and then I would audit the types of claims that you are making there. For example, you might see, oh, when we're on social media, we talk a lot about convenience, but we don't actually quantify the time anywhere. Maybe we should talk about how many hours per week, per month, per year, so we can give that some more, you know, give that some more oomph, give it some more backup. I think that's really your first step. Identify those major communication points, those hubs of major impact, and then see what kind of claims you're making so you can see where you might need to put a little little more seasoning of evidence on there to, to up your game a
1: little bit
2: so we're all about learning here at leading learning obviously that's the name of the podcast and because of that we always like to ask guests who come on the show about their own approach to lifelong learning and i know you think of yourself as a a lifelong learner i know you are a lifelong learner so what are some of your specific habits practices sources for continuing to grow professionally and personally for that matter
0: So I am a huge audiobook nerd. That is like my number one source of learning, probably just because I've got a little one, I'm on the go. And so the amount of time I have in the car, on a plane, wherever is much better. And I'm able to get a lot more reading done that way. So the way to my heart is usually through Audible or the Libby app. This is another one I love to tell people about. Your library likely has a relationship with the app called Libby, where you can rent audiobooks for free from your library, just like you would with a physical book. So those are my go-to, Audible and Libby. And the other thing is I have a really firm policy that if you are not getting new intake, you cannot create new output. And so for me, I try really hard to force myself outside of typical genres or, you know, even if I read every business book in the world, I'm still gonna be missing so much broader context for humans and psychology and interpersonal relationships and in history. So I feel really strongly about kind of going outside the algorithm when you can and trying to consume whether it's music, movies, TV, books, whatever, that's outside of where your comfort zone is because you get so much better outside context when you're mixing in new ingredients. So those are some of my, uh, my go-tos for my approach to learning.
1: Melanie Diesel is a keynote speaker, co-author of Prove It, Exactly How Modern Marketers Earn Trust, co-founder of the creator Kitchen Mastermind, and a generally savvy thinker and content creator.
2: In the show notes for this episode, leadinglearning.com slash episode 388, you'll find a link to Melanie's website where you can learn more about Prove It and her work in general.
1: Jeff and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, especially if you find the show valuable, because ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business.
2: And please spread the word about Leading Learning, whether in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague, a personal email, or on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com episode 388, you'll find links to connect with us on X, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.